four, three, two, one. Welcome back, everybody, to the Savage Chromecast. I'm Luke. I'm Josh. Hi, Jonathan. And we three will be the uh, the, the ringleaders of, of tonight's little circus. Uh, we are in our twelfth <laughs> season of of the Chromecast, and I think this is our sixth episode, guys, for the season. So we're on the uh, the Appalachian Road, the Mountain Road, the Manly Road, the Manly Wade Wellman. Uh, season that we put together here talking about John the Balladeer. So this is our sixth episode, and we're talking about the story, Where Did She Wander? Where? Where did she go? Question where'd mark. She, where'd she go? Where did she wander? I wonder where she wandered. Off to. <laughs> I hope that's the whole show right there. That's, <laughs> that's, that's the story. Well, we have to do the whole the whole episode with a series of questions, right? We're all just going <laughs> to... Oh, it's like an improv game. Yeah. <laughs> Where yeah. did she wander, Josh? Uh, I I wonder. <laughs> that's not a question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's uh, that's the story we're going to get into. Uh, looking up a little bit of the the background information here before we started recording, Josh. I think you said that this uh, seems to be the last uh, uh, of the John the Balladeer stories, right? I got it. Yeah, this is actually the last story that Wade Wellman wrote before he passed away. Yeah. Um, and it was published in a uh, publication, a book called The Valley So Low. So this looks like it was a collection of uh, Wellman stories, not just John the Balladeer, uh, but um, several others that are outside that uh, that mythos, that uh, that collection. And so looking here, uh, uh, some other John the Balladier stories in that collection are uh, uh, Owl's Hoot in the Daytime. Uh, it looks like there's a couple that we haven't covered. Trill Coster's Burden, The Spring, and of course, Where Did She Wonder, uh, on top of some other uh, stories by Wellman. But yeah, this is this is the last one he wrote before he died. And, and there is something kind of eerily final about this story, I think. But we can get into that a little bit later. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm looking here too. So it also, you can find it if you're, if you're looking for ver- various like other like multi author collections. So it's in whisper six, whispers volume six. Those are a variety of, of, of horror, uh, anthologies that came out. Uh, and that might be something that, that you might be able to hunt up, hunt up. This is actually, that's actually the last, uh, of the whispers anthologies. Cool. So, yeah. Looks like there's a best of whispers though that was put out by Borderland Press. It could be cool. Oh, yeah, that could be a good collection too. There's a story nice. in whispers. There's a story in whispers six called Sleeping Booty by Richard Wilson. <laughs> just, I just wanted to throw go. that out there. Yep, I really that appreciate is, uh, that. That's the name of a story that's in that collection. <laughs> anyway, yep. Yeah, that this is the last one that Wellman wrote uh, before he uh, before he passed away. Yeah. So, uh, so we'll get into that. I guess before we, uh, delve into the story, we'll do our couple, uh, our couple things that we like to talk about on the front end. Uh, let's see here. John, what are you drinking? I'm having some wild turkey 101. Nice. What about you, Josh? I've got, uh, Heaven Hill, the green label, and I'm also sipping a land shark that somehow appeared in my beer fridge. Um, yeah, it's fine. Sweet. It is. It's fine. It's a summer beer. Yeah, I uh, I've got a, a my little playmate cooler here uh, with a bunch of high lifes in it. That's what I'm drinking. Summertime and 
high lifes are the uh, are a good beer to drink in the summer. Josh, how many how many high lifes would you say you drank over the course of your your life? This is a hard question because um, I didn't drink a lot of high lifes in college, nor did I drink a lot of high lifes in grad school. But since grad school, I've had a whole lot, and even just this year, I think I've I've gone through about a twelve pack every week or week and a half maybe of high lives that's been my go-to since uh since march since the the coronavirus shutdown started happening so i'm thinking it's more than a hundred yeah it's It's more it's more than a thousand i think (laughs) i think it's more than a thousand we uh we we had this conversation you and i did uh uh, sometime back, and I know we did a little Twitter poll, and we the the three of us have talked about it sort of as a group. I'm I I uh, I didn't intentionally plan on drinking high lives tonight on the show to bring this up. It's just that I had high lives in my beer fridge, and so that's what I brought up here. And then it dawned on me that I would I would spring the uh, the poll question on you guys because and and we talked about this with you too, John. So, yeah. but before we get into the the results of our poll and talk about that, John, how many high lives would you say you've drank? In your life, twenty-four. <laughs> just a, just a mere case of high lives, maybe. No, I'm gonna, I would say twenty-four. Yeah. Okay. So less than a hundred. Less than a hundred. Yeah. So definitely, I'm in the well over a thousand range as well. Just because that was my go-to. Like I, I don't know. Uh, I started drinking beer as a like as a high schooler and that's as just a wee lad. like, like th- I, that's not a point of, uh, of, of, of pride or anything. That's just like the statement. Like I didn't, uh, start drinking, but like until I was about, like, I don't know. I probably got drunk the first time when I was 15. Uh, I was definitely not driving age. And so I would say I was 15. Well, that's and, responsible. I think that, we, I mean, you couldn't drive in the first place <laughs> and we would, we would go camping uh, and I don't know, high lives have always been the cheap beer of choice. And I don't know, I will like, uh, go to my grave thinking that it, it's, it's, it's one of my top five Island beers just on the basis of it's easy drinking, it's carbonated and it is what a cheap beer should taste like. And cheap beer, in my opinion, is pretty damn delicious. So, uh, it's up there and it's on my list, but it, I to return like to how many I've drank, I, you know, like over the course of, a of a summer, how many cookouts do you go to? Like, I don't a know. Number. Like, a good number. Like more than like more than three and less than thirty. <laughs> but at any one of those cookouts, at least in the current my current age, I'll drink a half dozen. Uh, some might call that a six pack, up to a dozen. Uh, some might call that a twelve pack. <laughs> and when I was younger, I might show up to a to a, a cookout with an eighteen pack, and I would drink a lot of those beers. So. All of that is to say, the nights that I have drank high lifes, I would tend to drink more than one, and I yeah. think that's where the number comes from. So yeah. I don't know, being almost a forty-year-old and having drank since before I was twenty, and just running the numbers—it's it's a big number, which superficially sounds uh, large, but at the same time, when you break it down, it's not like something you drink every day. It's just like how many pints. Does a did a man in the eighteen hundreds drink, you know, and like onto his deathbed? 
right? A, a lot of pints. Yeah. <laughs> How many high lives must a man drink down before you call him a man? And, um, and, and it's just a, uh, I don't know, it, like, so we were talking about this. And so let's return to our, to our, our poll that we put on. On the on the Twitter sphere, Josh. We how okay. many do you have? Did you have it pulled up? I saw you. Click it I was I was looking for it. And I wasn't able to to find it. So hang let's, tight. Well, we can uh, let's talk about this. Oh, here we go. Got it. Uh, so uh, how many bottles uh, slash cans of Miller High Life, the champagne of beers, have you consumed over the course of your life? Uh, and the first choice was fewer than a hundred. Second choice is between a hundred and a thousand. And the third choice is more than a thousand and uh, 31 votes were cast and 80.6% of people uh, responded with fewer than a hundred. So the large majority, less than a hundred high lives in their life. Now this is, there, there are some cofactors that we didn't factor into this. Like how old are you? Right. For sure. And that has to be adjusted, right? Like if we were to, if we were to change it and say, how many high lives do you drink in a year? I think we might get at a more equalized number of votes, you know? Right. Um, this was, this was a quick spur of the moment, very non-scientific approach, but, but it really could, came down to the number of like, is it more than a hundred or is it more than a thousand? Because depending on like, just those are orders of magnitude. And it's kind of striking to think that you might've drank a thousand of any one style of, or brand of beer. Like that's, it's kind of cool. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, we could expand this out and send out a Google form poll for people to respond to. Maybe we'll, we'll start working on that. Yeah. Um, one person did ask if high life is a regional brand. (laughs) And I almost responded to that tweet with another tweet (laughs) that showed like the top selling beers in the, uh, (laughs) like in the world (laughs) that blows, that boggles my mind that somebody might not know that, that might be a beer drinker, but not know what Miller high life is. Yeah. Uh, so I don't think we're necessarily selecting for beer snobs on the Chromecast. And I don't think we're necessarily selecting for uh, teetotalers on the Chromecast. And I don't think we're necessarily selecting for a young listenership on the Chromecast. So the, the fact that that number came in under a hundred, like with the overwhelming like margin is surprising to me. Yeah. Given that we drink a lot of cheap ass beer, like <laughs> it's, it's <laughs> on the show and sing the praises of it. So I don't know, uh, you know, I'm not necessarily a fan of Miller Coors, but if I'm going to drink a cheap ass beer, it's going to be the high life or the PBR or the hams, like one of those three. Yeah. John, you're, you're being very quiet. <laughs> I'm listening and learning. I, co- I contest John's, assertion that he's only drank a case of high lifes in his life. Like you're not a huge beer drinker, John. Uh, but, but I feel like you had to have drank at least that much over the time that we've known each other. I've only, I brought some high lifes. I brought some high lifes over to your house. Yeah. Maybe it's, maybe it's like 36. I never heard, (laughs) I never heard of it until you guys brought it up that one time I visited, I think. Yeah. Like, I think my first high life was the first, cross plains visit we all made together we were in that liquor store in texas somewhere mm-hmm. and you were like i'm getting these and i was like what's that you said it's the champagne of beers and i trusted you <laughs> and he didn't lead you astray it is a tasty beverage i don't know sorry i didn't mean to necessarily detract i feel, felt like that might be a 
a fun thing to talk about, though. Good banter. So that's what we've been drinking. Let's go ahead and we can move into the uh, what we've been getting into phase of the show. We might hazard to call that our one thing. Now, how about, uh, John, I'm going to go back to you again. Do you have a one thing ready? I do. I'm going to go with one that you guys have talked about on the show before. I watched the entire season of Watchmen <laughs> over the course of about a day, and it was pretty glorious. Uh, Josh is nodding his head over there. I know you're a big fan of this. What was it that you love so much about Watchmen? Huge fan. The casting was perfect. The music was uh, uh, amazing. The The story was uh original enough with some really great winks back to the source material back to the original um boy that that is just my favorite superhero thing that i've watched i think ever i i i think it is layers upon layers of of story um everything is just so well done it's it is every bit as deep and uh you know open to analysis as the the original watchman uh graphic novel yeah it actually man it's just so good it reminded me of my first time reading the graphic novel i was that enthralled like i remember the same feeling when i read watchman for the very first time being just so pulled in and needing to know what happened next and i think eating the whole thing in a very quick kind of setting but then going back and rereading chunks and relearning things and re-noticing and noticing new things it really was awesome i had sort of actively avoided it when it first came out because my opinion was that there didn't need to be a sequel to watchmen but the more i heard you guys talk about it and the more i learned about it and i never got spoiled on anything i didn't know any of the twists or turns but i just knew what it was kind of broadly about and it was a really good story it it was not the one i anticipated somebody telling as a sequel to watchmen but it's definitely one that fits and definitely one that works. And I think should be uh, proudly held up as part of that, that storytelling tradition in that same universe. Yeah, man, it's uh, at least in my opinion, uh, the way that an adaptation should be, it's its own thing, man. Like, like it is a new piece of art. It is an interpret, an interpretation of a thing but it is is its own thing and i don't know i i don't want to see a rehash the beat by beat of the the adaptation i want to see something new so i was excited about it just on the basis of knowing that lindelof was the director of it having like come off of watching the leftovers uh which i think is i've never read that 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 book that that whole series sprang off of but that show has a lot of the same feel. And that even came across with the, uh, the trailer of Watchmen. And I, I don't know, I was just, I was psyched on the basis of just the overall feel of it at the outset. And man, it did not disappoint. I agree. It's, it's killer. I know we've talked about it before, but (laughs) in this current time, in this world, like it really is going to be an evergreen thing. I think it's, it's crazy. Like the, the whole, mask versus no mask sub story the 
the the fact that it is a sequel to the comic and not necessarily the film. Um, and, and I won't say anything beyond that other than, you know, if you watch the movie in preparation for watching the, the series, you're going to be kind of confused, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, man. Oh, watch Watchmen. Everybody stop what you're doing. <laughs> pay the 15 bucks or whatever you need to pay for a, a month subscription to HBO. And it's well worth it just to watch Watchmen. Yeah. My God. You're 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 cheating yourself. <laughs> you don't watch it. Who's next, Luke? Uh, Josh is going to be next. Okay, I haven't had a lot of just time to to dive into um, games or movies or anything over the last week or so. Uh, but a game that I've been playing, and I can't remember if I've talked about this recently, is uh, uh, King of Dragon Pass. And I I know I've talked to you guys off mic, but I don't know if this has been a one thing of mine. Um, but King of Dragon Pass, I picked it up on mobile. Uh, you can get it on iOS or you can get it on Google Play. And it is a choose-your-own-adventure mixed with a turn-based strategy mixed with a uh, civilization management sort of game in which you have taken control of this clan of barbarians that has moved into the uh, geographic area of Glorantha, um, which we'll talk about more in a second, uh, called Dragon Pass. And you and a a ton of other barbarian clans are are living there alongside one another. And the point, the object of the game is to become the king of, of this geographic area. And in order to do that, the first step is to, uh, get your clan to like you. And that is the the phase of this that I'm in. And the way the game is structured, it's, it's in turns and each turn is a season within uh, a calendar year for this clan. And you have a ring, a council of seven different uh, NPCs that advise you on every decision. And so um, as you move through the seasons, you have to, allocate how many people are going to be farmers, how many people are going to be uh, your weapon thanes, your soldiers, and how you're going to allocate magic from your from your uh, shamans, uh, whether to your herds or to your uh, crops or to your um, to your trade routes, whatever uh, aspect of civilization that you want to enhance just with with magic. And as you move from one season to the next, a scenario will pop up on the screen and there will be a number of outcomes that you can choose from. Uh, for example, one of them that keeps coming up in mind is that the children in the, the clan keep growing beards. They grow beards overnight <laughs> and they're very disturbed by, disturbed by this, the boys and the girls, both of them. Uh, it could be a curse from another clan. It could be just foul, wild, wild magic. Uh, it could be who knows what, and there's a number of things you can do to, uh, comfort the people in the clan. Um, you can tell them just wait a while and this will, this will go away and the beards will fall out. You can tell them that you'll, uh, pray to the gods for guidance to, to see who, see if you can divine who is laying this curse upon you. And, uh, whatever choice you make, there are, there's an upside and there are multiple downsides. There's, there's never just the perfect choice. It's, it's just like life, right? You, you have to weigh all the, the pros and cons. Um, 
And interestingly, you're not always going to know what all of the pros and cons will be. And some of these decisions will come back later. And so if you blame another clan for, for this magic and it turns out that it was not that clan's fault, then you've made an enemy of that clan. Um, and so those types of decisions can be weighty and there's no way that you can get through this game with, uh, without ticking off another neighboring clan. It's just going to happen. Um, anyway, I'm rambling a lot because it's just so deep. It's, it's very, a very, very deep, very immersive game. Uh, again, it's all text-based and it's set in the world of Glorantha, which is, uh, an RPG setting, right? Luke, are you familiar with Glorantha? Uh, you told me what it, what it was used, like what the other thing that it's setting for. Is it RuneQuest? Yeah, it's, or, I think it's uh, RuneQuest or he, he, and HeroQuest. Okay. Um, let's do a quick bout of Google Foo. Glorantha. Um, it's a Chaosium thing. RuneQuest, HeroQuest, King of Dragon Pass. Um, it's, it's a number of, of different settings. So this is the, uh narrative RPG hero quest and not necessarily the, uh, the board game hero quest. Right. And so it's, it's, uh, it's based on a, you know, established RPG system. And I don't know much about the lore of that world, which makes it even cooler to me because I'm learning this, this brand new, like flavor, I guess this brand new world and all of its flavor. Um, it's cool. I like it. I recommend it. Um, on mobile, it's going to run you. Uh, if you catch it on sale like I did, uh, you'll pay six ninety nine for it. Um, normally, it's ten bucks, mm-hmm. but boy, it's so deep and so immersive, and and there's just so many different things that can happen, so many different ways it can articulate out as you play it multiple times that it's it's worth uh, every penny. Yeah, yeah. Lots and lots and lots of replay, right? Like that's mm-hmm. the that's the take home message. That's cool, man. It's pretty it cool. Steam it on GOG as well, so maybe there's lots of options to get it. That's right. Yeah, you can get it to, to play on your laptop as well. Um and on GOG it typically goes on sale during the summer sales and the uh the fall and winter sales for like two bucks. Um so it's well, well worth it. So that's me, King of Dragon Pass. I don't cool. know if I've if I've talked about it before but I <laughs> okay so uh so my one thing is i don't know I, I, it'll be an author i guess that will be it, it's specifically a short story that i read but it kind of put me down the rabbit hole of this author uh so uh david drake is uh an author of a variety of different fnsf stories and I read this story called The Shortest Way, and it's in – I've already talked about this book a couple episodes back, but the First World Fantasy Awards, it's an anthology, uh, and it's an acquisition during the COVID life uh, from, from eight books. Uh, and, but I'm, I'm, I've just been working through this anthology and this was like the last story that I had to read. Uh, maybe there was like a Dennis Etchison story too. Like, but, but basically I sat down one night and I, and I knocked it out. Uh, and now I'm working on the second, the second, uh, compilation or anthology of that world fantasy awards. Uh, and I read this story by David Drake and it's, uh, it is a, it's a horror uh, SNS story. It is a story uh, that takes place. It's Greek or, or Roman, I should say. Uh, there's a character called Vettius, 
Uh, and from what I've read, it seems like there's actually a collection of these different stories of Vedius and his friends that, that have, like, that's an anthology you can pick up on your own. But it's, uh, Vedius and a couple other dudes that basically end up taking a shortcut that in, that, wherein they end up fighting some, some pretty horrific people slash cannibals slash monsters on this road in the middle of the night. Uh, and so it's, uh, it's not sword and sandal. I think you can call it sword and sorcery given the horrific elements to the story, but it was just really well done. It's a short little read. Uh, and I, I read that and I was like, man, David Drake, what's up with that? And I did a little bit of digging and I realized that, Oh yeah, he's the guy that wrote the introduction to the John, the balladeer Bane edition that we're reading. And all of this stuff has been, uh, reprinted or printed in Bane editions throughout the eighties and the nineties. So you can get loads of this guy's publications, uh, through Bane for dirt cheap. And you probably can find him at any old secondhand bookstore too. And he's certainly somebody that I've looked over uh, at the bookstore previously. I just didn't have the wherewithal to, to pick up one of those volumes. Uh, and he's, uh, if we, we recall back to that, that introduction that we talked about in the very first episode of the season, he was a friend of Carl Edward Wagner's. And so David Drake recounts, you know, meeting up with Manly Wade Wellman and a, a, a night of some rambunctious whiskey and <laughs> trying to fix a fix a pipe coming down off the hill kind of thing, the water running into the cabin, that kind of deal. So so David Drake was a was a, a colleague or, you know, a contemporary alongside Carl Edward Wagner. Uh, David Drake is still alive. He's still writing materials. He has a long fantasy series that I think has been concluded. Uh, but there's a, he, he's, he's someone who's written short fiction and also of course written long form multi-volume type stuff. But, uh, as it stands right now, I have two, two books that I've ordered that are David Drake books from a books. Uh, one of the things that I think he's most well known for is a, is a series or a universe called hammer slammers or hammers. So possessive slammers, but it's a, uh, it is like a military science fiction uh, about like a tank group, like a, like a tanky sort of uh, uh, company. And I think they, I think they pilot uh, like uh, atomic tanks in the future, but it's very much inspired on the basis of the Vietnam war. And so it has that feel. So I'm getting the sense that it might be like atomic futuristic tanks, a la the black company, like Glenn cook's style of writing for fantasy. I don't know. I haven't, I haven't read that, but I definitely get that feel from this short story that I read, uh, the shortest way. Uh, so I've got that coming. And then another one of his anthologies is either called knights and demons or demons and knights, but it's a mammoth anthology it's like five or seven hundred pages depending on which version that you get uh when it's come out over the 80s and the 90s but anyway i found a beater paperback of that for three or four bucks too on a book so anyway so they're coming uh this guy i have some of his other stuff uh in a couple different anthologies so i'm gonna look it up uh but i was kind of taken by this story so if you've got any sword and sorcery or uh fantasy or science fiction or horror anthologies on your bookshelf and you're listening to this, maybe look through them and see if you can find a David Drake story. Cause he's, he's everywhere. He's actually in the, the whisper six whispers volume six that we talked about our manly Wade Wellman story. There's a, there's a David Drake story in that one too, that I noted. 
he's everywhere. We're gonna have to put him on the uh, the story list. I, I think. I mean, I'm not, I, again. I haven't read anything really that I can recall outside of this story here. Uh, but I like the feel of it, and it definitely has a Carl uh, Edward Wagner kind of flavor to it, or Glenn Cook kind of flavor. That kind of darker tone, and I think a lot of his stuff is military inspired, given his own service history. So cool. That's that. That's my one thing. So we got three different one things. You mix them up in a cauldron, bring them to a slow boil. Something tasty comes out. All right. You guys want to uh, talk about the story? I do. I guess. That's kind of what we do. Where did she wonder? Again, we we started off the the recording tonight with uh, some statements that this is uh, this is the last we think last uh piece of uh fiction that carl or that uh that that manly wade wellman wrote uh it's the last story within the john the balladeer collection uh and and it has an air of finality that's something that you said josh right yeah it it has this strange bittersweet sort of i don't know that's it's a it's not even implicit or explicit in the story. It's just implied. It's, it's, uh, it's the way that the story ends. Um, in the other stories, there's sort of, uh, an epilogue, right? Like where Wellman goes back to, you know, whoever he's defending against these, these spectral terrors that he finds out in the mountains. And then he takes his leave. But, in this one, it's it's just kind of over. Yeah, like the the final the final uh, sentences are. I wondered if they all burn up in that fire, and I ne'er went back to see. And I don't hear that anybody by that hoppered name has been seen or heard tell of whereabouts. You don't know <laughs> where or what John gets into after this one. Yeah. And so it struck me as as being very uh, uh, akin to Solomon Kane's homecoming where he he kind of just disappears, right? He goes on and we don't know where he went and he's just he's just out there. Uh same with John the Balladeer. He's he takes his leave here and he has this this uh harrowing encounter with this this backwoods witch. Um and I gotta tell you guys, I think the villain in this story is the scariest villain from any of them, any of the stories that we've read for this season. Yeah, I would agree. Like there's, there's a, the, the presentation of her is, is creepy AF. Like, <laughs> like it is, uh, it's spooky about her head. Uh, it's spooky about like just her overall, like the fact that she's a, a young woman, right? Like that she's not a big demon or a wizened old man, or it's got a, an angry bird, or like, <laughs> like it's, <laughs> it's an, angry she, bird. an angry bird, an ornery bird that has wicked, I don't know, like, it, it the fact that it is uh, a young woman named Becky, who's not quite so, uh, like, she, she's, she's, She's scary, right? In her current visage, like once she's revealed, but it's that juxtaposition of what you were expecting versus what truly is the situation. Yeah. So what's the setup here? What's what is John? What has John gotten himself into this time? John, he's been hired as a musician for a festival 
and he's wandering down some gravelly roads. He's going to make his way there, and he's a picking and a singing, and he notices a big, sounds almost like an obelisk or a pillar or a headstone of some sort to a young woman that says, Becky Till Hopper, hung by the Trudeau folks, August the 12th, 1849. So I assume that's August 12th, 1849. Mm-hmm. And he's like, huh, there's lots of flowers around this. And he goes to town. And he asks, starts asking questions, as John is wont to do, and it leads him down the road to a very nefarious adventure. That's right. Um, one cool thing about the the setup here, of uh, this festival that he's going to play at, there are a couple of musicians that he name drops, that Wellman name drops here, who are actual musicians. Uh, first of whom is Aubrey Ramsey, and the second is Tom Hunter. And I sent you guys a, uh, a song on YouTube, yeah. uh, Tom, Tom Hunter, Tom, Tommy Hunter playing uh, the fiddle. So I like that. And it brought to mind this uh, verisimilitude that, that both Robert E. Howard and H.P. Lovecraft and, and Clark Ashton Smith as well lent to their stories by dropping in real people and real books in with their imaginary or, or, or made up or fictional books. I don't know if, if that had that same effect on you guys, but it, I, I just Googled these names and uh, out of curiosity and, and found out, yep, they they're real. And I thought I recognized Obrey Ramsey, but I I'm, I'm not certain if, if I actually did or. No, I'm man, I, making that up. no, I, I think, I think you're, I, I totally agree. Something else that stood out to me just in the second the second paragraph where he talks about the grave and there was the pile of flowers. He mentions and fla- flowers piled around, blue chicory and mountain mint and turtle head fresh as that morning. And I recognized, I mean, I know what mint looks like and I know chicory, but I yeah. didn't know turtle head. So I Googled that and that sure enough, like that is a common, it's a common wildflower. It's uh According to the U.S. Forest Service, like uh, plant of the week, it's uh, balsamy or codhead or fishmouth or shellflower. It's a figwort, but it's it's a common mountain, <laughs> like a mountain flower. Oh, and and it's a level of like verisimilitude, right? Like this just gets at mainly Wade Wilman isn't coming up with some half-ass name for a mountain flower. He's throwing out actual names of flowers and he's using actual names of, of mountain musicians and, and folk musicians. And like, there is that level of authenticity to his writing, right? Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. It's just, it's just a testament to, to how and how he writes. And it's, it's great to me that, Lovecraft dropped in names of, of scientists and, and, and mystics and uh, Howard dropped in names of boxers, right. And real historical figures. And in the, these uh, mainly Wade Wellman, John stories that are so intricately sort of bound with music, he's throwing in names of musicians. So yeah, I thought that was pretty neat. Another thing that he throws in here along these lines is, and I texted you guys about this too, another name for a morning dove. Did you Had you guys ever heard this one? I wasn't familiar with that. Yeah, my papa used to call morning doves rain crows. And so that's what a uh, rain crow is. It's a morning dove. Um, and uh, it's, it's funny. I was just at my mom's house this weekend, and she said something about rain crows 
because some morning doves flew up to her her bird feeders. And uh, yeah, I don't know. That was just kind of fresh on my mind. Yeah, just these these cool, you know, uh, multiple common names for species that we're all familiar with. Yeah, so so we've got uh, John's coming in to play at a folk a folk a folk festival, a, a one night yeah. event. He's playing a show. I was very shocked whenever there was the statement about like how large uh, the the like the 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 crowd was that he was playing for. It was like not tens and hundreds there's something like a thousand plus right like there's yeah. a statement like that that's how many people can fit in the bleachers and i was like yeah. that's that's how many people live in my home county like, that's big like <laughs> big. so that was kind of like that kind of that change in scale uh in my head it, it made me reimagine like in my head i wasn't necessarily thinking of a venue quite that large like with with bleachers that have been put in uh but you know there's 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 yeah. probably a fish fry i mean right it's gonna bring people in yeah if you're having uh multiple uh singers and, and and pickers playing yeah maybe some pecan pie this is big doings this is like county county fair style stuff right yeah for sure yeah so anyway uh uh of course uh John is interested about the the circumstances of Becky's demise, and there's a little bit of a story that's laid out here. Uh, she's a witch. She was a witch, right? And uh, she was taken care of. And how do we ultimately get to a position where John encounters Becky towards the back end of the story? Like, what's the connector between the show and everything else? The, the truly scary bits. Uh, well, he, he plays the song that he learns about her in front of the crowd and they react really poorly, <laughs> yeah. but, but by, like to silence, right. It's, it's eerie. Imagine being at a, a music festival and somebody played a song and the crowd was just staring at, at the musician <laughs> and then never applauded. Not having that's, it. I, that's, that's eerie. Uh, but this song opens some sort of cosmic door that allows this witch to know that John is near. And she also reveals later that she knows that he is a strong young lad, right? He's powerful in multiple ways. And she wants that power because she's, she's, she's sort of a vampire, but she's also sort of a, a succubus, right? Like she is uh, absorbing the energy from, it sounds like mostly men, at least the two people who she has absorbed that or the one person that, that she's absorbed that we know of was mm-hmm. a guy. And then her intended victim was another guy. And so she puts the idea in his head to come up to her cabin, right? Like she, she, um, sorry, John finds out that her homestead is up this mountain past the gravestone. And so he goes up there. And I love everything. Like, I like this story up till here, but I loved everything that happened once he reaches the cabin and on. And it's a short story. It's one of the shortest ones we've read. Um, but he arrives here to these creeps, right? These absolute <laughs> creepy backwoods ne'er-do-wells. Yeah, I think, I think that this story, uh, like I'm definitely getting a feel for 
how Manly Wade Wellman constructs a lot of these uh, these Silver John stories. Because this one and Owl's Hoot in the Daytime and like the this one and the previous story definitely have like almost a a double act structure wherein you get the setup and the spooky story unraveled and then you get the the truly spooky like the supernatural weird encounter in the second the second act uh and where in contrast to like with Owl's Hoot in the daytime where Silver John just rambles on down that road and you get that little like denouement kind of kind of wrap up to things that's what's absent here and that's what ends it I think on that 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 spookier that spookier step but this is a similar kind of structure to the other shorter stories that we've read so I don't know like it, it's cool to see the narrative structure of this story echoing what we've seen before, but also having a different feel to it. Cause this is different than, uh, Owl's Hoot in the daytime, like just with how it's, how it ultimately comes across to me. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. As he leaves the town and goes up to, uh, the second scene at the cabin, we get a couple of cool little bits of folklore that you guys were talking about when I hopped on the, the Skype call and one of those is he's trusting in his guitar's silver, right? Which he, right. we've seen him do before. But he has a couple of other charms in his pocket. And one of those is a buckeye. And it was given to him by some some guy he knew in the Ozarks. Uh-huh. So, and Luke, I think I heard you say that you had a buckeye that you carried around with. Yeah, you. I had I had a buckeye that I carried in my backpack doing field work pretty much. I definitely had it throughout my masters and then throughout my PhD. I don't have it now, and I must have I must have I don't know. I mean, maybe it's like in a in a coffee cup or something. Like, you know, I've got a couple different coffee cups where I have just random things i'm looking at one of them over where my D books are and i'm wondering if it might be in there now actually <laughs> like because that's the kind of thing where it would go because i wouldn't have thrown it away uh obviously it's a it's a good luck charm but i carried it and it was dried like it was it was a hard crinkled uh buckeye by the time i like throughout the whole time that i had it and i don't even rightly know where I heard that Buckeyes are good luck. I just know that I had one in my backpack and it was just always in there. That's funny. I, I never heard this before this story, but then did a little bit of, of uh, research on Google and found lots of stories about Buckeyes being good luck charms. So I wondered if that, if that wasn't more an Ozark thing than an Appalachia <laughs> thing. I, I don't no, know. I would like, I was telling John, uh, like, like Buckeye, uh, isn't incredibly common like all across Arkansas, at least like the, the, the bits and pieces of the Ozarks and the Washita's that, you know, that I grew up in and I tromped around for, for, for work and stuff. Uh, it's not a species that you just find as widely distributed as you do across like, uh, you know, here in Kentucky. And it's not even a species that's super common here in Kentucky. It's not something you just find everywhere. You find it in pockets. It's locally abundant, but uh, I'm wondering if, cause I did like the FFA forestry thing in high school. I wonder if I may have like came across it at a forestry competition or something. And that's how it got in my backpack. Uh, cause that would make sense. Uh, but I don't know. Like I had this Buckeye and I, I did not know the stories about why it was good luck. I just, it was good luck. And it ended up in my like common little pouch where my GPS and my compass and my, uh, pins and stuff would go in my backpack. 
and it just always stayed in there. <laughs> so, like, what are some of the reasons for why Buckeyes are good luck? The Well, the one that he posits in the story is hilarious. He says, no man's ever found dead with a Buckeye in his pocket. <laughs> sure, okay. Correlation and causation. Yeah. That's, that's a perfectly this good... This is my uh, tiger-proof rock. I've never seen a tiger <laughs> while I've been holding this rock. <laughs> um, I, I don't know the folkloric tradition for for why buckeyes are are lucky. I do know that they are somewhat toxic, right? They they're mildly toxic, and so even though they look kind of like a chestnut in in some aspects, you shouldn't mm-hmm. eat them, right? They have a gnarly seed pod too, like the outside yeah. of the shell. Yeah, yeah, they do, kind of spiky. Yeah, that was what I always knew them as. Is like, oh, that looks like marijuana. Ohio State is named after them, and they have the spiky balls that come out of the trees. Not the sweet gum spiky balls, different spiky balls. Yeah, yeah they were the the palmately compound leaves. That was like the representation on your tree list for the state of Arkansas. There was only a handful of trees uh, that would have that kind of leaf arrangement. So, yeah. and they're uh, opposite, right? Uh, I don't know. They might be. Uh, I think there's a. What I remember is this uh, memory device for opposite leafed trees in our area, and it's mad horsebuck, maple, ash, oh. dogwood, uh, horse, chestnut, and buckeye. Oh, cool. We learned, so I learned be mad, be mad. So B is for box elder, which is also acer, which there is you maple go, yeah. too. So, so box elder, maple, ash, and dogwood. That was the mnemonic. And so uh, the other funky. Uh, opposite species in uh in arkansas what is it oh crap my brain fart uh i'm gonna have to think about it it's not it's not rusty black hot it's another funky one anyway oh uh, there's there was like one there's like one other species that that had that opposites that you would commonly see and it was the monkey wrench uh but again like we I didn't see buckeyes except for like on forestry competitions where somebody would like give us the fruit or give us the leaf as a collection, like a pressing, as opposed to seeing something out in the woods. And uh in eastern Kentucky, anyway, buckeyes are pretty common in uh you know, flat riparian areas. Right, right. So um I'm reading through some that stuff mean- online about why it may have been taken on these connotations of good luck and there doesn't seem to be anything definitive there is this sentence that says why carry it in your pocket convenience perhaps you can simply reach into your pocket and rub it or twirl it between your fingers for good luck so maybe like a rubbing stone it's just something that you can kind of work on and if you lose it there's usually another one lying around somewhere (laughs) He's he's of use that's great this this article on how stuff works says uh Ohio's nickname stems from General William Harrison's 1840 presidential campaign. His Buckeye log cabin west of Cincinnati, decorated with a string of Buckeyes, became the symbol of his run and even part of his campaign song. Part of the lyrics went as follows. Oh, what? Tell me what is to be your cabin's fate. We'll wheel it to the Capitol and place it there elate for a token and a sign of the Bonnie Buckeye state. So I don't know. Terrible state. Quick side note for anybody that's that's wanting to double check, uh, Rusty Blackhaw, also known as Rusty Viburnum, which is the the other name. That's what I would what I learned it as. So I kind of just like the the thought form of Blackhaw came into my head, but it is opposite too. 
So, so viburnum trees have uh, opposite arrangements too. This is like dendrocast, dude. I'm loving yeah. it. Na, 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 na. The folklore. Of I'm loving trees. Voice. I love trees. <laughs> uh, a so nobody can steal this. We're patenting it right here. But a uh, a a folklore and mythology of trees podcast would be pretty badass. It would be patent pending. Patent, yeah. patent pending, and none of us are botanists, so <laughs> we'd call it Mad Horse Pod. <laughs> Shoot, that's that's it. That's awesome. Um, so yeah, the so he's equipped with Buckeyes and a silver string guitar, and he goes up the the path up this mountain that he's climbing. I love the description of of him leaning down to climb through all the the mountain laurels and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, also, the mention of the broken off locust tree that points points to the path. There's a lot of good uh, tree descriptions actually in this story. Yeah, that's Again, true verisimilitude dude right like it really you if, if if you know what this stuff looks like it just sort of paints the picture of what he's what he's going through and he gets to this cabin and this creep this absolute just uh i don't know if he gave you guys the creeps but he did me uh guy just sitting on the the front porch of the cabin says we've been awaiting for you <laughs> <laughs> He is a creeper. He and the kids yeah. that would come running out in a little bit. Yeah, uh, his like the the thing that was most disconcerting about him is the fact that he was sharp dressed. He was dressed sharp better than me in my jeans and old hat. Good fitting pants, as brown as coffee, and a bright flowered shirt. The bright flowered shirt was weird to me. Yeah, and then he he was soft pudgy, and his cheeks were bunched out. Like it, like his overall description is disconcerting. It's because he's out of place. He's out of place, and he's kind of frog-like. He's mm-hmm. he's greenish. He's his cheeks are puffed out, like you said. And I think his description when he stands up, like his bent, his legs bend, kind of funny, like a frog's legs. His teeth are green and mossy. <laughs> and so he's there with his son and his daughter, and he mentions his great 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 aunt Becky. Oh, poor Becky! They they hung her on that tree. Um. Invites John in, and there's there's some interesting decor in here. This captured my imagination too. This horned backwoods <laughs> idol, this god right. that they worship. Yeah. No explanation really. Just a weird pagan god. Right? Yeah, I, I interpreted it very much like satyr esque, like pan esque, like a horned goat god. And, uh, yeah, it's been worshipped here, and I can't tell for how many generations. Uh, walk all around the room, and those eyes keep a-looking at you. Try it. <laughs> no thank you. But John has seen paintings do that before. That ain't special. Yeah. <laughs> it's still pretty disconcerting. Um, and then, what, Tulay? Is that how you said the, the girl's name? Is that yeah. T- yeah, so... <laughs> I, pre- I, I guess it would probably be Tuli if you Thule, were... Tuli, yeah. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, Tuli. Yeah, uh, she's, he says, you all pray to that idol? And she says, this is how I hear it in my head. We do. And he answers our prayers. He sends you to us. <laughs> it's just all spooky. It's spooky. It's yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so here's here's where I really got the creeps. Here we're talking. This is Hoppard. This is the, the father of the two kids. And he says, they told you he had had a charm to win Becky, said Hoppard. It was more the other way around. She charmed him to fetch him here. Oh, no, he's talking to John. I'm sorry. What for, I asked. He was needed here, said Hoppard. 
and totally repeated, need it here. And her green eyes looked at me sidelong, the way a kitten looks at a bowl of milk. To help Becky to a long life, Hopper went on. The hanging nair truly killed her. And so her folks just set her head back on his neck bone and fetched her home. He nodded to a door and let, that led to the lean-to shed. She's in yonder now. Nope. If that doesn't give you the chills, if that doesn't kind of get the goosebumps forming on your arms, I don't know, man. I, it, that worked for me. That's that's pretty effective tension building. So when your tension was ratcheting up there, what did you expect him to find behind the door? Because I was kind of expecting maybe like a mummified set of remains of this woman that was sort of representative of the god. Like they would have put the jewels in her eyes or something. Because they keep yeah. talking about how she's not buried where they say she's buried. So my expectation was definitely that he was going to walk in and see a mummy. And I thought maybe the mummy would come to life. But I was pleasantly surprised that I was wrong. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I thought similarly, John. I was thinking about, like, uh, I don't know. Uh, there's a, I, I don't want to spoil the movie. Like, there, there, there's an, an instance of, of that kind of death visage. Like, that's what I had in my head. Was it going to be something old and not alive but still like emanating evil and no we get we get we get the evil (laughs) she is evil um this song that he plays harkens back to the first john story that we read um the lyrics are long is the road on which i fare over the world afar the mountains here and the valleys there me and this old guitar the places i've been were places yes the things that i've seen were things with this old guitar, my soul to bless by the sound of its silver strings. And that's one of the first things that John says about himself is, uh, well, I'm, I'm John and I've been places and, uh, the things I've seen are things like that's, that's one of the first paragraphs. And I like that, that circular sort of like we're, we're calling back now to the very first appearance of John. And that's, I think why this captured my imagination in terms of feeling like, it was John's last adventure. Because we're bringing it and, full circle. Yeah. And this this boss, this final boss that he's about to face here is, is uh, even though she's dispatched pretty easily, um, she's scary. What's it about her that makes you get the heebie-jeebies? Uh, she's a, she's a, a, an old, creepy, succubus witch with her head kind of still detached yeah. from her skeleton, right? Like... It's uh, at some point it just kind of like flops off and is hanging there limp from where she got hanged forever ago. Yeah, that's that was the that that's the the oh shit freak factor right there. Like that's the that's the that's the big scare. Uh, if this was like some sort of filmic presentation, the the head lopping over, and I like how it is how it's hinted at. Right, the fact that she's got this blue scarf like wrapped around her neck. So you don't see what's under the scarf like that. That was that was the ultimate like like factor. But prior <laughs> yeah. to that, when she's introduced, the fact that she's wearing this red robe and then the statement uh, that's given here, her lips were redder than the red robe and, the, and they smiled with white teeth. It's very vampiric. It's very uh, much the succubus and. I mean, it's seductive, but the the things that's coming out of her mouth, right? Like, how do you know my name? Say a little bird told me. She mocked him. A bird with teeth in its beak and poison in its claws. Like, she's just, she's got all levels of spookiness in her. <laughs> yeah, she's got her own, 
ugly bird <laughs> that whispers secrets yeah. to her. And well, she's teasing too. Like that's that's the other thing. Like the way that she's like teasing and taunting with the delivery. Sorry, John, I didn't mean to cut oh, you off. No, you're fine. I guess that my question to go further into it was more like, so what about the fact that did she get away with it? Like did she get away with something in 1849 when she was killed? Yeah, Is that yeah, sort she's of scary. She did. She's she's been clearly. I mean, she says she's been uh, doing this for decades, right? Just right. whenever she needs, whenever she needs some life force to keep her going, she wills a, a strong young man up to her cabin, and he he burns up for her. I guess I I had a lot of questions about that when I was reading it, and it was maybe one of the reasons that I didn't end up as scared of her as I did the last character, who seemed more like an elemental sort of forever evil down deep in the earth whereas with her like she's she's sort of a siren luring people in it sounds like especially with her song if her song gets sung it seems to open a chance for her to ensnare somebody but if she's this like powerful witch thing why can't she fix her neck why can't she get out of that chair and terrorize the whole town that did her wrong like why can't she burn trudeau to the ground well i i guess i guess in my mind it's it's kind of like uh Saying why did uh, why didn't Dracula burn yeah. um, the the villages in Transylvania near near his castle down and kill all the people that were nearby? He could have, but he he's a predator in the same way that she's a predator, and you oh, can't. I see that. Okay. So yeah, so she has like a level of malevolence, like the uh, the the devil in Owl's Hoot in the daytime is both evil and omnipresent, like, like, uh, not omnipresent. Like he is, I am automatically ascribing like a, he kind of gender to him too, because they're wrestling around. It's, it's a very masculine type of type of villain that's presented there. Uh, that monster is far more powerful than Becky Hopper. Like I think just just on the basis of whatever D and D stat you want to talk about, like that is that is a devil. And here, the fact that she is at least something that used to be a woman, and so she's at least human. That's a level of extra evil. Like she presumably was was human at one point in time, and she's not that now. And like the fact that she, uh, like the way that she says, like you know, you're going to give me your life. <laughs> and he says, you know, uh, I don't aim to stay. You'll stay and give me life. And he says something about the others. And she said several, and I made them glad to give me their years. The fact that he, uh, that she's basically saying, I'm going to break you and you're actually going to, you're going to willingly give this to me. Like that's an extra level of evil, right? Like mm-hmm. that's, that's any number of, psychosexual adept like uh, uh interpretations can be added on top of that but that's that's right man like that is what she is she's a succubus she's gonna take this life force and you're gonna do it willingly because you just can't you can't say no yeah like that's you, you're gonna <laughs> she says you'll burn up for love of me like she she's saying that she he's gonna do this willingly and he's gonna love her the whole time while, while his essence is being transferred into her. And to me, that's, that is like an extra level of evil. So sort of on that same vein, I think one other thing I thought about was 
and I don't think that this was intentional in the design of the season, but it felt like to me we went down this road where women really changed in the Silver John stories. If we look back towards the first couple of episodes, Oh, Ugly Bird and Vandy Vandy, I think that we had some some like winking and nodding about, well, John's a real handsome man coming into town, singing songs and wooing ladies, and then he leaves, and there's still some love for him as he heads out of town. And then in Little Black Train, we start to see there's a woman that is evil, that has the hots for John, clearly, and is trying to entice him, but he's able to resist her. Then, but he also kind of puts her on the straight and narrow, though, too, right? In a way, yeah. Like he kind of he he at least provides an avenue for her towards redemption. And then in Call Me from the Valley, we have a ghost woman who is not interested in John, is interested in her true love. And then women are absent from Al's hoot in the daytime, and now we're into where did she wander? Where women are is woman is the evil in the story, I guess. And I don't. Did you guys think about that at all as we finished the story and finished our Silver John stuff, or? that transition or did you, do you think that's weird or am mm, I crazy? No, I, so I didn't think about it until you mentioned it here, uh, John, but I like my thinking of it is that the, like Becky Hopper in this story is not, she's not human. Like she's a monster. She's, she, she is a, a female monster. I don't see it as a trajectory. Like I think those varying levels of innocence that John is presenting of women across his stories. And I think that the, the, the ghost uh, at in call me from the Valley, like I didn't necessarily think that she was bad. Like she, 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 like she ultimately got some level of, of, of happiness. Like she's a happy ghost that, that was able to, you know, essentially like rest eternally with her love. That's how I interpreted that story. Right. I think it illustrates a breadth of like how women are presented in these, these uh, silver John stories. Maybe a breadth of even how John perceives women. Like it feels like those early stories are he's younger. And then in these latter stories, we even hear about like the moon landings and stuff. And in this one, we sort of seem to think he's an old man, maybe on his last adventure. Like maybe he's changed. Maybe he views women differently. So did you think that, Josh? Did you think that he was like older in this story? I you know, I I didn't think I didn't think he was older necessarily. Like all of the these stories seem to me to happen in the span of a year <laughs> or uh-huh. something. Like like he's he's just going from one place to the next. Um but I can see, like I said, it reminded me of that Solomon Cain's homecoming poem where, where Cain is an old guy and he's lived this long life and he's recounting all of his deeds and who used to be there and how the storm still rages in his soul and he can't sit still. Um, and he goes off and we don't know where he's gone. And the way this ends, you know, uh, it's it's just over it's it just it's over so fast he says uh like luke said earlier i wondered if they all burned up in that fire i ne'er went back to see and i don't hear that anybody by the hoppert name has been seen or heard tell of thereabouts now there's novels right and so i don't know where the novels fit in or if they make reference to any of the stories but um 
I don't know. There was just this weird air of finality. And maybe it's just because I knew this was the last one Wellman wrote before he died. Oh, I thought that air of finality in the last one, too. Like, I I will say that in my mind's eye, in the last two stories, Silver John had some more silver in his hair and was an older man. Like, these were later adventures in his life. (laughs) Whereas in the first couple episodes, I saw him as, as a pretty young guy, like, hopping around in the mountains being a troubadour. Yeah, in my mind, he hit, like the Silver John that we've seen here. Seen here has always been thirty three years old. He's always looked exactly the same. And like Josh said, they might happen within the span of a year. Maybe they happen within the span of ten years. But regardless, Silver John is a static Jesus. Like that's definitely the the level. Like the the religious interpretation here of the stories. Like that's thick with me. Like he is perpetually, like I, I didn't, I didn't see an age difference. I guess that's what that's that's all I can say. And that's why I like talking about things with you guys. Yeah. I also think that that makes it like we talked a little bit around the fact that the younger women. I mean, I think we should even say the the girls in the first couple stories are enamored and in love with Silver John and he uh he basically shrugs that off in a very Jesusy fashion. That's kind of my interpretation. Like there's some element of sex that's wrapped up within that, but Silver John himself is not making sexual advances towards those girls that might want it. Like he is, you know, uh, like they're hot for teacher, but he is saying like he's he's taking that sort of like uh, uh, Jesus type stance, like you know, like he's a cleric. Just yeah, uh, <laughs> but and then like just to kind of like t- talk about age of age of women. Otherwise, what like in Long Black Train, the uh, the woman that's in that story is older and is mm-hmm. like wearing the makeup thick. And is also infatuated with John. Like John is has this uh, this resonance with a variety of different women. And here we have a young woman who is is not a woman. She's a young monster at this point. Like she's a timeless immortal witch vampire, and she wants John. She wants John. Like she wants to burn him up. Like yeah, I guess. <laughs> That's what I was there thinking is a about. sexual attraction. Yeah, like we start with like a 15-year-old, a 17-year-old, a 40-year-old, a dead woman, and now like an immortally dead woman. And I just thought that was an interesting trajectory through the through. I, I know we haven't read all of Silver John, but for what we've gone through, I thought it was an interesting set of women, I guess. And, you know, in some of the stories, I think at least one – John has a companion who might be more than just a friend named Evadare. Um, this is in the story Trill Coster's Burden about the Sin Eater that we talked about way back at the beginning of the, the season, maybe even before the season got started, we were picking stories. Um, and she plays a pretty big role, I think, in that story, but doesn't appear again. And so I think I think in order to get a clear picture we would have to take a bigger sample. Right. But, but from the slice that we've taken, it's, it certainly seems like there is this maturity that's happening in terms of the, the women in the background, be they antagonist or, or protagonist. 
There's something there. When, when you say maturity, what do you mean? Well, uh, age. The the fact, yeah. Yeah. So from 15 to 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 20 to 40 to ghost to uh, immortal, like like John pointed out, like there there is there is kind of a stratification there. Um, and I don't yeah. know. Yeah, that's that's a that's a cool observation, man. I, so I, don't I know. think I think Silver John is uh, two things. I mean, I think he's a lot of things, but just like as we're talking through this, I think John is both uh, attractive to all women and men. He has an air, this this magnetism. People want to talk to him uh, because he is a Christ figure. Uh, but th- especially within the stories that we've read, save one, uh, the story before called uh, uh, Alice Hoot in the Daytime, all of the others have a significant uh, male-female yin-yang attack- attraction mm-hmm. towards John. I think that's one thing. And I think the other thing that makes Silver John Silver John is a lever- level of like spiritual celibacy. Like, And again, going to the Jesus thing. Like, So I think you would throw any uh woman figure be her uh like virgin or whore across that you know classic horror story dichotomy or any prepubescent up to elderly woman and i think if it's going to be john like what we're seeing here is there's going to be some sort of strong attraction yeah these are largely asexual stories like there is not a lot of romance really in them I would say the one that had the most sexual tension is is the Black Train one. Mm-hmm. Even that is very one-sided. Like, John is not tempted at any point, really, by that woman. I didn't feel like. I didn't. He wasn't going to succumb to anything. So I definitely see what you're saying. And I'm not trying to say, I guess, that, that Manly Wade Wellman and Silver John have a lot to say about women. I was just curious about, with the selection of stories that we had made, or that Josh had made when he planned the season, there is this weird arc of women, I feel like, in terms of age and, <laughs> and just what they're doing in the story. Yeah, you're right, especially what they're doing in the story. Yeah. Um, you know, from from victim to uh, antagonist with, with agency and, and some, um, some evil end that she's trying to accomplish. Like, I know when we did Conan, we, like, ping-ponged around on women, right? I mean, there were women who were queens. There were women who were prostitutes. There were women who were just all about Conan. There were some that he had to convince that he was cool, I guess. And this seemed much more like a firework. Like it was just arching. Um, I, I've I've made the co- uh, comparison between Solomon Kane and and Silver John a couple times, just because Kane is our man of the cloth from the Howard um, yeah. stories. And Kane was severely tempted by a woman in the story Moon of Skulls, right? Is it Negari, the uh, the queen in the the, the kingdom in in uh, the lost kingdom, the the lost Atlant- Atlantean mm-hmm. kingdom oh, yeah, in Africa, yeah, yeah. right? And she wanted Solomon Kane to be her um, concubine, essentially, right? Her her king, her male companion, and he was he was totally into it until he until he suddenly wasn't. Yeah, I think there's some similarity, like because also Solomon Kane has this motivation uh, to to rescue uh, a younger a younger woman too. Like there with Solomon Kane, it's it's personal and it's kind of psychotic, and he's not quite right in the head. 
like like Silver John is the Buddha and Solomon Kane. Solomon Kane, like we talked about, is more the the the, the damaged punisher like type of type of character. But the the same like template for incorporating women into those stories, I think there's a sim- a similarity there. That's a little bit different than what we saw with all of the various Conan stories. That of course we read all of the you know OG Conan stories. So we we saw all of that sample size and we didn't see that here with all of the various uh Silver John stories. Yeah. Luke, can you talk more about uh, you've hinted at it a few times this season about your religious connotations that you associate with Silver John. Now that we've reached the end of our Silver John stories that we're going to read for the season, is he John the Baptist? Is he Jesus Christ? Like I think he's on? Jesus, man. Okay. So I think he's I think he is God or not so I'm saying this like no I've I've not like thought it through in its entirety. Uh but as Josh was reading over the uh the the song the story song that he that he sings uh at the back end of of the 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 story where he talks about uh long is the road on which i fare over the world afar and there's the call back to that first story that we read of the season so it struck me and it wasn't something that that i i know i noticed the first time around but these are these are a couple of the verses the things i've seen were things and with this old guitar my soul to bless by the sound of the silver strings okay so uh the uh the places i've been were places yes and the things that i've seen were things it didn't strike me until josh actually said it out loud that is very much an old testament God statement, the uh, I am the I am uh, yeah. type of, of of being, and I think the same way that a burning bush says I am the I am, I think Manly Wade Wellman has the same intentionality with his statement. The places I've been were places, yes, and the things that I've seen were things. It's a grounding and a statement of like. Of, of presence. And then the second part with this old guitar, my soul to bless by the sound of the silver strings, John is, he's walking around and he's a uh, proselytizing and he's, he's handing out the good news. He's, he's delivering the gospel uh, in these stories and he's sitting, sitting right wrongs. So, you know, he's using that guitar and his silver tongue to bless the people that he's coming into contact with and whether it's like, the young women that we see in the first couple stories or the, uh, the old woman that he kind of shows a better way. And he says, Hey, you know, it's, it's your, it's kind of, you know, it's, it's your situation to, uh, to deal with this ghost train and either, either fix things or, or, or your soul be damned for good. Like he, he basically is providing uh, a sort of a righteous path to these people. And here, I think we're getting a uh, uh, "My name is Legion" banishing of of some bad folks type story. I can see that for sure. Like these are all these are all Jesus gospel stories. Like this is like the gospel of, of John the Balladeer. Like what we're seeing here are are little vignettes. So he's like and a just, disciple, or I mean, or he's no. I mean, I think he's I think he's holy. I think he is God. Like. Like he or or he's G, he is a Christ figure. He is a he is a Jesusy figure. Like he like John the Balladeer may be mortally 
you know, a man. He may have flesh and blood that make him uh, a man, but he is more than a man. The same way that people would argue, you know, that Jesus is the son of God, even though he was like a person. I kept going back and forth between, because John, like the John name is a, is a name of power in the New Testament. But we have mm-hmm. John the Baptist and we have John the Apostle or John the Young or whatever you want to call him, the one who's loved. So I thought a lot about that Apostle thinking about this story, thinking about John the Baptist as a bringer of good news, as you kind of talked about with the silver tongue. I also thought about Judas a few times, like the focus on silver and coins yeah. in, one, in one of the stories we read. Made Several think, of them. Yeah, made me think about him and think about, not that he's Judas, but what if he is Judas? Like, what if this is what happens to Judas after he hangs himself? Like, he gets a second chance at being a, a person by being a balladeer that spreads the good news and fights evil in the Appalachian region of the United States. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I, I think that these religious overtones are interesting. And I really appreciate that you brought it up multiple times through the season because it really made me think about where this character was coming from and what those religious tones were. Along along those lines, in the introduction that Carl Edward Wagner wrote, he says, um, I'm going to read the first couple of paragraphs. There are moments in literature, very rare and very marvelous, when a writer creates a unique character. One such moment occurred in 1951 when mainly Wade Wellman began to write stories about John the Balladeer. He had no last name, no other name. He was known only as John. Some reviewers suggested that Wellman intended John to be a Christ figure. Manley firmly denied this, but he often hinted there might exist some mystic link to John the Baptist. And then he references Mark chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. And those are, as as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Yeah, I, I also, so while, you know, an artist may say, I'm doing this thing, but it's not the thing. Yeah. Like, regardless of whether or not Manly Wade Woman uh, felt that he was writing John the Balladeer is the the second coming of Christ in the Appalachian, in the Appalachian region, like he, he, he wasn't necessarily doing that because clearly the stories are too oblique to like leave that kind of interpretation. I just stand by, he's writing Jesus stories. He's yeah. writing any number of chapters uh, within the New Testament. The stories, the, the structure of them, uh, it's it's the same way that Kung Fu is a Jesus-structured type narrative, too. Well, absolutely. Uh, like, you think about the stories of the New Testament. Jesus and the boys wander into town. There's a problem. There's a thing. Uh, he tells a parable. Like, it, yeah. is, it is a very similar narrative structure. That's that is a timeless storytelling structure. Right. So you know, he's not reinventing the wheel. He's 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 uh, he's making fine fine yarns. He's he's spinning fine yarns, and he's this is literature, right? Like yeah. he's there are only like how many Western stories like we hit in the Western <laughs> season. There's like seven different narrative structures, you know, and there's those kinds of remarks that there's only like X number of stories to be told. You're just sort of like putting different icing on the cake and, you know, sort of manipulating the ingredients a little bit. I, I buy that, man. Like we're seeing, uh, that kind of structure. Yeah. And, and I, I didn't read that to refute what you were saying. Uh, but instead just sort of share that there, there is clearly, 
a link between John the balladeer and a messianic figure. Yeah. And also like to, to make the, the, like the, you, you brought up the, the, the silver and the, the emphasis on pieces of silver, John, right? Like silver is a, is an, is a, an like iconic item within horror movies, right? Like there's this interconnection between like the iconography of religion and the iconography of horror. And that's like, that's, uh, uh, Manly Wade Wellman's playing in that pool too. Like he's in he intentionally chose silver, right? Because of those associations, working with horror and working with uh, the afterlife, you know, like that's dude knew what, knew what he's doing. That's why we <laughs> that's why we can talk about like the layers on the onion, man. Like that's how a good story gets made. The dude uh, really put together it's it's cool that there's so much to talk about in such short short stories because these are i these are shorter stories right versus like the conan or the solomon canes or any number of the howard stories that we've covered across our longer form seasons like these are punchy uh and we're again we're selectively picking that out there's a couple uh silver john novels that are out there uh so there is longer form, but it, I get the sense that a lot of these Silver John stories were single issue publications, or they're presented that that way. Yeah, and there's as much here as a as a flipping Conan story. That's, yeah, that's we've, for sure. we've talked we've <laughs> talked longer about this story than it would have taken for us to read the story to the audience. Yeah. Certainly. So we get a, a lot of thumbs up, I think, on this one, right, guys? Absolutely. Yeah. Even with the abrupt ending, even with the the fact that this, you know, it ends with John burning this this witch lady and running out of uh, running out of the cabin, uh, it it's it's not dissatisfying in terms of the narrative. It's just I want there to be a whole nother book of John short stories, and there's not. I mean, there are others in this book that we haven't read yet, but I want there to be tons and tons of these stories and. You you noted there are some novels, but man, mm-hmm. I just want there to get a bunch of these. Yeah, it's cool, man. There's a there's a lot of good Manly Wade Wellman. We can hopefully come on back to uh, to him with other content. I would love to do just horror of Manly Wade Wellman uh, that we can get into. I would be curious to know, you know. So again, looking at ISF. DB here. It says, according to Stuart David Schiff, who's the editor of Whispers uh, and a personal friend of Wellman, this was the last story that Wellman, uh, written by Wellman before his death. I wonder what his you know, not state of mind but like state of being was as he was writing this story too. If there was more in his head if it was a rushed, I don't want to say a rushed job, but it was something that was a more rushed bit of writing or if this was something that was sitting for any number of months and he was just working on it, like catch as catchy, catch can. I don't right. know. This is good. I'm excited. So uh, we're talking about this as if it's the the end of things, and it's not quite. We still got a little bit more of the season left, right? That's right. Uh, at least two other episodes. We're going to talk about uh, the Mike Mignola and Richard Corbin uh, collaboration on Hellboy. That's the Crooked Man, and that's a what a three or four issue run on Hellboy. Is it longer than that? No, it's short. I feel like it's, it's three, but I don't want to necessarily. I don't want to. I don't want to say for sure. But it, it yeah. definitely is a shorter 
miniseries. Yeah, that's exciting. I'm I'm really psyched to talk about Hellboy. We we've talked about the fact that you could, uh, especially in um, Owl's Hoot in the daytime, you could throw Hellboy into that story, and it it would still pretty much work. Mm-hmm. Um, in place of Silver John. So I'm psyched to talk about the Crooked Man. That fits into this this sort of uh, tableau really well. And then, uh, oh, brother, where art thou? Which is uh, another sort of investigation of uh, uh, adventures in the in the southern part of the the U.S. out in the country. So I'm psyched to talk about that. And and uh, and, uh, and a fair amount a, of, uh, there's a fair amount of like religious overtones in that too. So we can we can keep on talking about. Religion for sure. <laughs> for sure. Yeah, it's that's uh, that's a good point. Um, and there's a handful of really short, really, really short stories. Did you guys look at farther down the trail in uh, in uh, uh, the collection that we've been reading? So farther down the trail is a collection of like transitional sort of uh, one page shorts like flash fiction of John. And uh, it would be it would be fun to talk about a handful of those if you guys were down They're They're super good. It's uh, further down the trail. And then there's another one, actually. Um, let's see. Is it wonder as I wonder? Yeah. Wonder as I wonder some footprints on John's trail through Magic Mountains. Cool. And those yeah. are both in the same collection. So if we if we wanted to uh, read a handful of those just as a punctuation point on the season for when we. uh wrap up with oh brother where art thou mm-hmm. yeah fun. i have i have a copy of after dark which is one of the two uh uh silver john novels and i'm gonna see if i can crank away it's super short uh and i'm gonna see if i can crank away over the next couple of weeks too to have an idea of what the longer form looks like so i might be able to give a little bit of a book report about what that looks like at least like the overarching narrative and that kind of longer form story cool Cool. So, uh, yeah, this is, uh, this was what the sixth episode. I have to look at my show notes again. I can't ever even remember what, (laughs) what season or what episode it is. So herein we, uh, discussed where did she wander? Question mark. This is in our 12th season, the sixth episode. And we're in the, we're in the home stretch here, guys. We're going to be wrapping up Manly Wade Wellman season pretty soon in the next like two to three episodes so uh where can the good people find us josh if they want to they want to reach out and and get in touch or just look us up they can uh follow that mountain trail up up into the highlands right and they'll they'll find us if they if they truly need us they'll find us no they can go to the chromecast.blogspot.com where we host all of our content um we're also on facebook and twitter at the chromecast you can email us. We're the Chromecast at gmail.com. And uh, we're on Instagram also. I forgot about that one at the Chromecast. And call us 859 429 Chrom. And be ready for, uh, you know, what? The first minute's free, but after that, it's 99 cents a minute for each additional minute. Yeah. But we will predict you. And it takes using tarot cards. Yeah. <laughs> for sure. All right, guys. Right. Next time yeah. we're going to read a Hellboy story. Woo, woo. We'll get to see some crazy-ass Richard Corbin art. We're going to talk about some freaky-looking folks. Like He's tapping into what Manly Wade Wellman's throwing out on the page here. For sure. Corbin's a weird artist, dude. Yeah, he is. <laughs> <laughs> but 
now it's time for us to wander. Bye, everybody. <laughs> I am a pilgrim and a stranger traveling through this pilgrim land. I've got a home, Lord, in yonder city, and it's not built by hand. and a brother who have gone to that sweet home I'm determined to go and meet them over on that other shore I am a pilgrim and a stranger traveling through this pilgrim land I've got a home lord in yonder city and it's not built by hand as i go down to Jordan just to bathe my weary soul if I could touch but the hem of his garment oh, I believe would make me whole I am a pilgrim and a stranger traveling through this pilgrim land oh, I've got a home Lord in yonder city and it's not built by hand saw gif was timely and relevant and funny and it did not get the response that i wanted